You're right. No. Okay. Quaff. Sun on the horizon. Condense. Circle. Time. I call with all my heart. Answer me, O Lord, and I will obey your decree. I call out to you. Save me, and I will keep your free, your statutes. I raise, rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open to the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your law. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yet you are near, O Lord. All your commands are true. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them. Nice stuff there. Okay, let's see what we got. We got um, we got Roz over in England. We prayed for her. She's been suffering for a year with a hip after hip surgery, and she couldn't walk well. And she says her leg is improving with the prayer. So she's walking better, and she's still exercising to strength her muscles, but it's taken a year, and all of a sudden it's starting to get better. So praise the Lord. Yeah. And then uh, Rex, oh no, we already got that. I had a prayer request sent to me, and he was praying about getting the right job, and then he got the right job before we even prayed. because it was uh, Anyway, so that's a good job for Rex. And then we have um, that prayer list. I asked people to have just one name to uh, uh, that they want to pray for, for um, uh, salvation of somebody they know that is not saved. And uh, I got... Let's see here. Mike asked for Betty. Sean asked for David. Maddie asked for Ryan. Um, he questions the deity of Jesus. And then Becky asked for her sons. Eric, Brandon, Elizabeth, Kelly, Everett, Miles, Declan, and Caden. And then Jackie and Bruce for Becky. And then Charlie for Charlene. Not this Charlie. And then Jim asked for prayer for her, his brother. And Ekemi. As a son-in-law, Ilya, who needs to know the Lord. Scott asked for prayers for Ellie and Cheyenne. And Louise's husband, Colin. And Louise's friend's husband, John. So those are the names of the people so far that uh, have asked for a person to be uh, saved. A couple sent more than one. But uh, anyway, um, so that's that. And we got the praise from Roz over in England. And we'll go ahead and ask the Lord to hear our prayers. Heavenly Father, we certainly pray to you. For uh, in praise for Roz, who's walking better. We're thankful for that. And we uh, just lift up anybody else that we haven't mentioned as far as uh, sickness or, uh, you know, financial troubles or whatever. Uh, that's all I have right now at this time this week. And uh, But we do have those people that uh, we've mentioned for uh, salvation. And you know each and every one of them, Lord. And we would, as a group, lift them up and ask that you would kindly respond and uh just according to your wisdom, lead people into the right direction or have the right person come by their direction and uh, whatever miraculous way you know how to do that these people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and uh, that their lives would be put on a really happy path. And Lord, we got some good news from Papua New Guinea yesterday that uh, the missionaries there have already established a, a, a link with the people there with and they've led a few people to Christ already and that's why we send people over is to uh, get this word out even to people that have never heard of the message before so we're thankful for them and we're thankful for what they're doing over there and uh, Lord we just commit this uh, class to you we ask that it would be a time of blessing for anybody that's here or that watches now or later 
And Lord, we just thank you for the chance to get into your word. We have freedom in this country to do so. And you know that this church holds your word in high esteem. And we would pray that those other churches that may not do that, that they would come to uh, right reasoning and realize that this is a really precious word you've given us and that we should not trifle with it. And may it be so, and may it be in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're in verse 9. Before you start, Tuesday. yes. Next week, you will not be. Here. You will not be here next week. And some people sent extras on that list. Did you add an S? Uh, yes, <laughs> brothers. There is a. There is uh, Jim's brothers. We are praying for. Yeah, I, I. I would hope that people would just send one name in the future so that we can keep the list uh, directed and focused. But uh, that's uh, the names that we have for right now. They shall all be lifted up, and. Uh, then also, uh, might as well add into our prayers just later. Uh, I went to visit somebody that a girl I went to high school with. Her husband was in surgery today to have his toe taken off. Wow. And yeah, because the first question I asked was, is it diabetes? And she said, yes. And I told her, you've got to be really careful and you have to be tough on him in the future because once you have something like that, it, it can very quickly get out of hand. And so uh, uh, his name is Stephen. And uh, so we'll pray that uh, Stephen will be okay. I went and visited him on the way here today, just before he went into surgery, and he was willing to pray. So we prayed together, and uh, uh, hopefully things went well with the doctor, but we'll have an answer to that probably by the end of the night tonight. Anyway, we're in 2 Corinthians 3, 9. 9 and I'll start in 7. Just to, just 7. To now, the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious mm -hmm. than nine? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Okay, great stuff there. It's one of the, Paul's ways of working a logical case as he build something up and then he asks a question let's see here yeah Paul builds upon the previous verse where he noted the glory of the countenance of Moses even though his ministry was one of death and which was merely written on stones once again why is it death because it's a law by law is the knowledge of sin all have sinned and therefore sin enters into the world through law and then death through sin and so it's a law of death you you can't have a law where sin is imputed and expect people to live. Leviticus 18.5, yes, the man who does these things will live by them. And nobody could do them because the law is given and man is incapable of meeting the law. All right, hence the need for Jesus. So um, his ministry, meaning Moses, was one of death and it was only written on stones. In contrast to this is the ministry of Christ, which leads to life and which is written on our hearts. But having noted glory associated with the ministry of death, that of the shining countenance of Moses' face, then logically, if that brings death and it's glorious, how much more glorious is the covenant or the law or that which supersedes it? Okay. In this, Paul changes the terms from the ministry of death to the ministry of condemnation and from the ministry of spirit to the ministry of righteousness. In other words, the law brought death, and associated with that death is condemnation, okay? It is ineffectual to save anyone. Now, you'll hear me bring that up several times in these doctrine sermons. I think I bring it up on Sunday. 
These people that go back to the law, I hate to say it, but the only word to describe it is insane. You want to go back to the law of Moses, which has condemned every person that was under it? Why would you do that? But people seem to have a propensity for wanting to prove God insufficient of saving them, and they just have to help them along. So there you go. Um, however, the Spirit brings life, and with that comes righteousness. So you see what Paul has done. He said death and then condemnation, Spirit and righteousness. It is not only sufficient to quicken the Spirit to live, but to also grant Christ's righteousness to the one who is so quickened, which is explicitly stated elsewhere, such as in Romans. Oh yeah, right here, Romans 5, 18 and 19. Why am I doing this? I'm all over the place today. I'm tired. You know what? I started out while I'm going to Romans 5. I started out this morning and I uh, got up and I read the Bible as I do. And then I typed my uh, to Peter commentary. And then I worked on the sermon for Sunday. And then after that, um, Sergio, he emailed me later in the day and he said, um, oh, I've been at the hospital and I've had a long day and I'm tired. And I said, well, after I did those things, I went to work and I fixed several uh, potholes in the parking lot. And then I had to dig out a drainage ditch, which has roots in it and everything. And it's up five, six inches of dirt. And I had to dig all that out so that the parking lot will drain. And uh, then after that, I uh, went to rebuild a toilet in the uh, bike shop at the mall. And what happened, the flange came up out of the ground, so I had to move the whole toilet outside, and I had, we have to get a plumber to weld in a new flange into the completely rotten iron pipe there. And then after that, I cleaned all that up because it was just a mess by the time I was done, and then I had to go home and do all of the prophecy update work, and then after that, I went to the hospital, and then I went down to Lowe's to get a fan for another bathroom I've got to fix. It's just been one of those days where it just hasn't stopped all day. Yeah, just boy, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I took a couple showers. Yeah, and then after that, oh, I got here and I had to fix the toilet in here because it's been five years and the flapper wouldn't go down. And you never replace just the flapper. And it, just so you all know, if you do, you're wasting your time because something else will break inside. So you take the whole toilet apart and you rebuild everything. It costs you twenty-two dollars. It's worth it. Believe me. If your toilet runs all night, it's going to be a three or four hundred dollar bill. No, you okay, take you take the whole toilet apart you and you the, the, you take the tank, tank off the and you replace everything. And I do that every time I do a toilet, whether it's at the mall or here. But after doing that, I got distracted, and so I went in and I started cleaning the bathroom as I do. And I went to clean the toilet and I went to flush it, and I oh I forgot to turn on the water. So I turned on the water and I forgot to hook up the hose. Oh. And it was a quarter turn valve, so it squirted everywhere. Oh my goodness. So I ended up cleaning the whole bathroom, the roof, the walls, everything. It's been one of those days. Wait a minute. Anyway. Huh? You said Sergio came home from the hospital. Yeah, he was visiting somebody at the oh, hospital okay. as well. But anyway, Sergio, after he, I told him what I had done, just by 11 o'clock, he said, you win. That was, that was only 11 o'clock. It was 6 o'clock at night there. But it's been a, a real long day, and I, I'm not... Firing on all pistons. Okay, Romans 5, uh, 18 and 19. Um, but that's a regular day. I mean, at the mall, I have stuff like that every day to do. But uh, uh, it was just, I added several things in there and the problems that went with them. Okay, 18 and 19. Um, flee sexual immorality. Oh, I'm in 6. you got to go to 5. Uh, I'm in 1 Corinthians. No wonder it's not working. See, I, no, 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 I got it. Romans 5, 8. I'm sorry, I was in the wrong book. I, and I do this. I'm tired. Um, let's see here. 18 and 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, here it is, yeah, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. He's very consistent when he says things. He says it here, he says it here, and it's always very consistent. 
resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, meaning Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's deeds, one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Okay, so he's talking obviously about Adam in the law that was given in the Garden of Eden, but it's the same thing. Law is given. If law is given and the law is broken, then sin is imputed. And that's what happened. And it brought condemnation to all people. So how much more condemnation can you expect when you have the law of Moses? You've got the Big Ten and everything that extends beyond that, 613 uh, commandments within the law of Moses, and you violate any one of them, any one of them, and the law is broken. And of course, there's mercy given on the Day of Atonement to cover your sins, but as we saw in the uh, Death of the High Priest sermon on the Cities of Refuge, there are some sins that cannot be atoned for until the death of the High Priest which is specifically the sin of murder, okay? Until he dies, there is no remission of that sin. And so the law, the uh, Day of Atonement, didn't take care of that guy's problems, okay? He had to spend the rest of his life or until the death of the high priest in the city of refuge. So there you go with that. Um, what is that? Uh, what, oh, Jody Martin. She's, um, I can't say anymore. Um, okay, anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, hello, Miss Garrett. How are you tonight? Good to have you here. So that's uh, Romans 5, 18 and 19. The glory of this ministry of righteousness far exceeds the glory of the law. The law faded away, but the work of Christ will endure for all eternity. The glory of Christ will shine upon his redeemed throughout the ages of ages. Short little commentary, but life application. The law of Moses is one of the most studied and cherished writings in all of human history. However, its intent, like all of Scripture, was to lead us to Christ. It is not an end in and of itself. Rather, we are to use it to understand our great need for a righteousness which is not our own, a righteousness found only in the work of Christ being imputed to us through faith. And that is it. That's the only way that this is going to happen. So here we go. Um, Ten. Ten. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Okay, surpassing glory. I had to let that person know what's going on there. Okay, so uh, this particular verse is based on the reading of the Greek version of the Old Testament passage found in Exodus 34. Exodus 34.29 and Exodus 34.35. Paul, using that idea concerning the glory of the situation at that time, says that it actually cannot be compared to the glory that excels. Now, before I go on with the commentary, the reason why I say that it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament in that passage is because there are differences between the Greek. It's known as the Septuagint, or the writing of the 70. Okay, 70 translators. Uh, I think it was actually 72, but they call it the uh, translation of the 70. Uh, they uh, translated the Hebrew into Greek. All right. And that's also called, if you ever see uh, the abbreviation LXX, a lot of people just say the LXX, that's 70, LXX, okay? So if you see that, that's what that's talking about. And the citations in the New Testament, when Jesus says something and the gospel writer cites Jesus, or when the uh, apostles the uh, write their epistles or the book of Acts or whatever, almost always it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There are a few times that you'll see the Hebrew in there, but the, the LXX is what is normally used, 
And when it is, I try to let people know that because there will be a difference in what it says at times in their Bible and what it says I'm talking about when they read the Hebrew, the, the, you know, the text of their Bible is from the Hebrew normally. And so it will be different. They'll say, well, I don't understand why that's different. It's because there is a little bit of variation. That's why just letting you know that. Okay. The giving of the law was glorious. It was glorious in the display at its giving. It was glorious in the contents of the law, which it revealed. It was glorious in how that law was ministered throughout the time of Israel's life under it as well. And yet it was a ministry of death. It showed that man cannot fulfill its requirements and thus only brought condemnation. The only thing that spared men from this was a grant of mercy based on the Day of Atonement rituals. With several exceptions, as I noted, the death of the high priest is one. They could also go down to uh, Jerusalem and sacrifice for their sins throughout the year, etc. But for general catch-all of all of their sins on the Day of Atonement, they would abase themselves, and they would, and they didn't have to go to Jerusalem for that, but they would have to deny themselves, and the high priest would conduct those rites on that particular day. That day, just so you know, is not going to be fulfilled in the future. The Feast of Trumpets, which people call it, it's actually not really the Feast of Trumpets, but the uh, Feast of Trumpets, or Yom Teruah, and then uh, the Day of Atonement, and the um, Feast of Sukkot, they're all fulfilled, okay? So when somebody teaches you in one of their rapture studies or one of their eschatology studies that the three final feasts of the Lord are to be filled, fulfilled in the future, you can tell them that is incorrect, okay? And the reason why is because all of the typology is fulfilled in Christ. Go back and watch the sermons and you'll see that very clearly. It's all fulfilled in them. But if they were not fulfilled in Christ, then Jesus is not the Messiah, because he fulfilled the law, and those are a part of the law of Moses. So if somebody tells you that the fall feasts have yet to be fulfilled, that the first four feasts are fulfilled, that is wholly incorrect. Okay, you can tell them that that is actually a heretical position to hold. It's saying that Jesus did not fulfill the law of Moses in its entirety. He did. That is not picturing the rapture, okay? The, the, the Feast of Trumpets is not picturing the rapture. Plus, when they start off by saying Yeah, when it's the Feasts of Israel or the Jewish Feasts, they've already started wrong. I wouldn't watch any of that commentary. Zero, because they've already started on a wrong foot. All right. But if they say the Feasts of the Lord and then they start later, which I've got a whole set of them over here that did that. He started out, these are the Feasts of the Lord. And then by the time he was done to justify an incorrect stance, he was calling them the Feasts of Israel. So you got to be careful. You just have to pay attention when people are saying things, because if not, you're going to get off on all kinds of misdirected uh, analysis of things. But uh, the covenant which came through the work of Jesus is a ministry of life. Old Testament, ministry of death leading to condemnation. The covenant which came through Jesus is a ministry of life. It excels in that where the law brought death, it brings life. And the law brought death to everybody. Jesus was under the law, and the law brought death to him, okay? Just not his sins, but the law brought death to him as well, because somebody had to fulfill that law if they were ever going to come out of that law. If not, then they would be under that law to this day, and those who have not come to Christ are unfortunately under that law to this day, all right? Until their eyes are opened and the veil is removed, Israel is stuck, and they're under a ministry of death and condemnation. They're not under the ministry of Christ, so this is why we want to pray for Israel. We want to do our best to be a witness to our Jewish friends and let them know. I love posting those One for Messiah videos on my page on Facebook every day because I'm just hoping that one of my Jewish friends will say, I wonder what that is. It's talking about some guy that's Jewish and 
They're great witnessing tools. They just are because it cuts through all of the nonsense that we would have to go through as Christians because they you, you listen to these people and their ideas about Christians are so off. I thought, you know, Jesus was a Catholic and blah, blah, blah. And this is what they were taught, you know? So they have no idea. But when they find out that his real name is Yeshua, that he was a Jew, and that all of the people that wrote the New Testament are Jews, and I started reading it, and I'm seeing Jewish comedy in there and puns, and it comes to life for him. And, you know, so there you go. Um, when I say... I never see them. I saw, I saw the one last... Oh, I post them almost they every day. All the time, but they never make it over towards me. Oh, okay. Sure. Well, you just got click on it. Yes. Did. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Where is the source? It's called One for Israel. Your oh, you're saying you see them. I got you. I, I, uh, yeah. One for Israel. And, I, you know, if you send me an email, I'll send you their link. And they've got great radio station you can listen to. If you like to listen to Hebrew songs and worshiping Jesus, I listen to it all day long on my computer. But, um, uh, yeah, they, they have great videos. And what I do, because during the day on Agape FM, while I'm listening to the music, three or four times a day, they will play one of their videos. And I pick that one, and that's what I post on. Uh, that's why, yeah. And, you know, sometimes you get repetition, but whatever. Anyway, um, in all ways, the glory of the law is shown to have, uh, let me go back a little bit. Yeah, uh, in Jesus, there is full pardon of sin. In Jesus, there is the sure hope of restoration with God. In Jesus, there is the prospect of eternal life. In all ways, the glory of the law is shown to have no glory compared to the work of Jesus on our behalf. All right, life application. People often feel the need to add to the work of Jesus as if they must do something to please God. But what can be added to what God has done? If his plan of salvation is not capable of saving, then whatever we do is surely not going to take care of of the problem. Everybody see the logic in that? Rest in Jesus, trust in Jesus, and don't add to the gospel which says that you are saved by grace through faith. <laughs> Anything else is not the gospel. Now this week I'm going to talk on Sunday about the sovereignty of God and I may add in, I, I've already added it in, I may change it a little bit, but the title may be something like the sovereignty of God is a Calvinism or something else, okay? I, because that way it may interest Calvinists to click on it. Okay, so I may add that or I might just take it out. But um, I will talk about that particular approach. Now, Calvinists believe you're saved by grace, but they believe it happens in a completely different way than we believe. Okay, now I posted that on uh, Facebook about nine or ten weeks ago when I typed the sermon. And one of the ladies that commented, she says, well, I can't wait to see that sermon. And she's probably forgot about it, but I haven't. I think every day I feel like posting on her wall that sermon's coming. And it... You have to understand that the nature of God doesn't change in any way, shape, or form. And unfortunately, Calvinism takes the nature of God and it changes it. And I don't want to slam people that hold to Calvinism, but they are just incorrect in what they believe. All right. And so, uh, and the only way sometimes you can talk about a particular issue, whether it's the sovereignty of God or whether it's, you know, eternal salvation, is you have to be able to get an example and say, this is wrong. So that that way people can process, oh, I see what he's talking about. And you don't have to take every example of every uh, incorrect analysis, but you can take just one and say, this person said this. Why is that wrong? And you say, well, I'm not sure. And then you explain it. Now they can process it in a different way. So when I, like, I think it was last week, I talked about John Hagee. Well, I intend to slam him because he's actually teaching a heresy. But uh, normally if I mention somebody, it's just because they're teaching something which just isn't well thought out through. 
I do it with R.C. Sproul all the time, and I love the guy, but he's just immensely wrong on some particular points. He's so, got it right now. He's got it right now. That's a fact. He, he knows all the places where he was wrong now. That's a fact. All right, so we're in 311. Well, we are. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Yeah, see? This one says a little different way. If it was... For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So same idea, just different way of saying it. The, this particular verse is, oh, I'm sorry, uh, that's uh, 311. Um, again, Paul shows the contrast between the law of Moses and the new covenant in Christ's blood. Here he uses a term, is passing away, which is a present participle. How did yours read the, those words? If what is fading away okay so that's still a present participle so that's not bad sometimes people will translate something a present participle and they'll say it not in a, a present sense and then it may be active you know so that means that it's not just present but it's also in an active mood and then you've got to make sure that matches and you'll get translations that don't do that um, so this is a present participle why if the new covenant has replaced the old has he termed it this way one could argue that it was because the temple was still standing in Jerusalem until it was destroyed in AD 70. However, Paul is writing doctrine for the church age, all of it. What he wrote then still applies now. So what does that mean? The answer is that Israel has not yet received Jesus Christ as a collective whole. Daniel 9 shows that they still have how many more years? Anybody? Anybody? Seven more years. Very good. Who said that? Seven more years in the prophetic timeline to do so. These years are yet future, and a temple will be rebuilt. Sacrifices will be made, and the old covenant will be employed during those seven years. I'm sorry for people that don't believe in dispensationalism because it's right there. I mean, Daniel 9 is very clear in what's coming. All right. This does not mean that it is acceptable for a right relationship with God, but that it is a time which is preparing them for an acceptable relationship with him through Jesus, exactly as Daniel prophesied. It's not what God wants for Israel, but it is what God has allowed for Israel. And there's a big difference between the two. This is the same type of terminology which is found. Let me take you to Hebrews 8, and I'll read you the same type of terminology there. We'll go to Hebrews 8, and whoops, 12, 10, 9, 8. 13, it says, um, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Well, listen, this is all for this church age, right? I mean, it's not something that just ended. And so we see that this is actually something that is ready to pass away, but it hasn't passed away yet for Israel. They are still under that law until they come to Christ, and they are obligated to that law. Everything it said in Leviticus 26, all of the, I, the Lord, will do this, and I will do that if you don't pay heed to the words of this covenant, and included in the covenant of Moses is the promise of the coming Messiah. I will send a prophet, and he will speak to you, and you will listen to him, and whoever doesn't, he will be cut off, right? Jesus is spoken of there. He's spoken of all the way through the law of Moses, all right? And so because of that, they are stuck under that law, and the Lord will continue to judge them, and they will continue to suffer until they call out to Jesus as a collective whole. Individually, you got to be careful in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, it says things to individuals and it says things to a collective whole. And if you get those wrong, then you can say, well, see, you can lose your salvation. In Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, I believe. 
that's not speaking to an individual. It's speaking to the collective whole of Israel. And when you get that right, all of a sudden you say, oh, well, that makes sense. Now I understand why this, these sets of verses seem to show that you can lose your salvation when, in fact, it doesn't say it at all. It actually upholds eternal salvation for the individual, and it also upholds the fact that Israel as a collective whole is going to come to Christ. And until they do, they are not going to be saved as a people, okay? So anyway, um, based on the structure of the Bible, the letters after Paul's epistles, which begin with Hebrews, are specifically directed to the Jews of the end times. You got the 14 letters of Paul, or 13, up to Philemon. Then you've got Hebrews, which comes after the church age epistles. And then you've got after that, uh, James, and then you've got Peter's epistles, and then you've got John, and then you've got Jude. And they're all written basically to the Jewish people. It doesn't mean they don't apply to the Gentile church. There are precepts in there which are very specific about, now we who believe do enter that rest, Hebrews 4.3. That's speaking to believers. If you believe in Christ, you have entered the rest of Christ. That pertains to everybody. But they are directed as a unit to the Hebrew people because it's speaking about their situation. They haven't come to Christ. Paul's given the doctrine for that and yet they are still lagging behind. It's written, the structure of the Bible is laid out so that you can see the dispensations of time, and it's based on the prophecy of Noah to his three sons. He prophesied over Canaan, said, cursed be Canaan, you're going to be the slave of your brothers, okay? And uh, then it, he prophesied over Shem, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and then he blessed Japheth, and he said, Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. Well, what's he speaking about there? He's speaking about the fact that Shem is here, Japheth is here, and then Shem comes back in here. He is dwelling in the tents of Shem. There is a time where Japheth will take over the lead in the theological mind of God. While Israel is out, Japheth will be in the tents of Shem, and then eventually Shem will take over again. He's in between these things that God is doing in redemptive history. And the Bible bears that out, the structure of the Bible itself. If you get that right, then you can see how God is working redemptive history. And it's not that the church is an afterthought as, uh, you know, uh, what do you, replacement theologians like to say, oh, they, you know, dispensationalists say that the church is simply a, a you know, a, a minor thing that God is doing until he goes back to the Jews. It's not that at all. The church is the thing that God is doing. It's just that the Jews haven't come into it yet. Okay, when they come into the church, it will, there is one, bill. how many cornerstones are there? One, one Christ. How many foundations are there? One, Christ. How many buildings are there? One, Jew and Gentile. It's just that the majority of the Jews as a people have not come into that building. There's not two gospels. There's one gospel, and this is what God is doing. In the meantime, while the Jews have rejected Jesus, and they're, so they're still under the punishment of the law, God didn't waste time. He inserted the Gentiles into what he is doing on a whole. He's building a church out of Jew and Gentile. Anyway. I think all that's in Ephesians 2. That Ephesians. You just, you just mentioned. Oh, yeah. yeah the building. And, yeah. Absolutely right. And then that's what Peter speaks about in the same thing. He says he's the cornerstone. He says we're living stones. I mean, the same terminology. People that can't get that and they say, well, God's doing one thing here and God's doing one thing here are completely wrong. He just hasn't finished up with Israel yet. As I said in the sermon last week. The Old Covenant is simply, it, it is not incorrect revelation, it's just incomplete revelation. Without the New Covenant, the Old is incomplete. People are going back and they're observing the Law of Moses and they're shooting themselves in the foot. Anyway, um, yeah, the structure of the Bible, the, uh, the epistles, 
are written by Paul and then Hebrews are directed to the Jews of end times. This is why the terminology is used. God reaches out one last time to the Jews of the end times for reconciliation to him. It is coming and may it be soon that they receive their Messiah. That should be everybody's prayer at least once a day, if not all day. Just, you know, Lord Israel, just keep praying for them. Understanding this, Paul says that this which is passing away, meaning the law of Moses, is glorious. It was received in glory. It bears the holy character of God. Jesus alone fulfilled it, demonstrating his glory, and he remains through it, having shed his blood and in fulfillment of the passing glory and being resurrected to lead us to that which is much more glorious, as Paul says it. We have an eternal glory before us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This glory is now bestowed upon all who receive him. Life application, reinserting the law, which, is, which Christ has fulfilled, is to reject the work that he accomplished for us. Plain, pure, and simple. Let us stand on the firm truth that he is the fulfillment of the law, and he is where our hope and trust must lie. Not in works, but in faith. End of story, 312. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Oh, that's short enough. Yeah, okay. Short. The word therefore is given as a general summary of what has been thus far stated. He's been speaking of the supremacy of the new covenant, which is written on our hearts and which exceeds even the glory of the old, which came at Sinai in such a wondrous display. It was written on tablets of stone by the very finger of God, and yet it cannot compare to what we now have in Christ. You know, I was talking to a Seventh-day Adventist once, and I'm saying, you know, the law is done. He says, no, it's not. He says, look, God himself wrote that law with his finger in stone. He said, that can't ever be changed. I said, it's not changed, but it is fulfilled. There's a, you know, they're stuck in this mindset. I just, you know, it's so sad that they just can't see that Christ said it is ongoing. No, it's finished. That's right. I, oh, whatever. Anyway, so um, in verse four, Paul spoke of the of trust through Christ toward God. Now he builds on that by saying, since we have such hope, it is the future of what the trust implied. We have trust now, and that leads us to hope in what the future holds. And because of this hope, he says we use great boldness of speech. This again builds on a previous verse. Towards the end of the previous chapter, he said, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. That was 2 Corinthians 2.17. That brings to mind, let me read that again. He says, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God. I was emailing with Isaac in Uganda today. As you know, we had a person that attends online, Ray Delbury, went to Uganda for a month. And Isaac was so appreciative of that because he learned things. He was able to understand what we're thinking and what motivates us. Okay. And he said to me today, if anybody, and this goes to anybody on the church online or, you know, and I'll say it again Sunday, I hope I remember, is that he says, if anybody wants to come to Uganda, they can come and they can stay there for free. He will take care of them. He'll give them a good time. He'll show them everything that they're doing. He wants people to come, okay? And not only that, he says, I can't pay for their travel over here, okay? They need to pay their own travel, but he says they don't need to bring us anything. If they can't afford to bring 
anything for us. That's not the purpose of having them come. We're benefiting by their presence. And so if anybody wants to go to Uganda, I told them I would love to go. There's no way I can go, but I would love to go. I would love to go to Uganda and to share with them and to see what's going on and also take a quick trip to Kenya where the uh, satellite church is there. Okay. I'd love to do that. But, you know, getting three or four days off is a lot of time. So, but if you have the ability and you want to go, he wants you to come. And he's not asking for anything in the process. He stressed that several times. So please consider that and you will bless them greatly. And I know that you will be blessed immensely. So having said that, uh, there you go with the uh, not peddling the word of God. He was very clear about that. We are not asking for anything if they come except them. He wants fellowship. His words are, this is going back to the commentary, his words are in sincerity, as Paul says, as from God. Therefore, because they are, and because they carry a weight and a glory which even surpasses that of the old covenant, he is able to use this boldness knowing that it has God's sure stamp of approval. Paul's confidence in the message he spoke was grounded in the very workings of God in redemptive history. That's good stuff there. Today, Christians have Paul's words written and recorded in his epistles. They carry all of the same weight, glory, and power as what Paul spoke to the masses he met along the way in his journeys. How can we not feel the same confidence as he did? How can we not speak with the same boldness? If God be for us, and he is if we rightly proclaim his words, then who can be against us? Life application. Who cares if your life is threatened for speaking out the truth of the gospel? Who cares? If it be the gospel you speak, it is the very message that saved you and will continue to save you. So speak up. 13. Oh, no. Oh, right out of the Bible there. Not, Go ahead. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Okay, this is a great passage here. I mean, the next few verses are just, they're wonderful. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone. Because of this, he veiled his face other than when he spoke to the Israelites the words of the Lord. However, when he went before the Lord, he would take it off again. The reason for the veiling then was to hide the brightness of the reflected glory of God because it was so difficult to look upon him. That reason seems to correspond with what Paul said earlier in verse 3-7. But in this verse, Paul seems to indicate another reason altogether. It was, as he says, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. In Romans 10, Paul shows that the law had an end, which is found in the work of Christ. This is why the law was passing away. Let me take you there really quickly. Romans 10. I'll get to the right book this time. I won't go to 1 Corinthians. We'll go to Romans chapter 10. And we'll go to verse 4. And it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness of which, is that what I want? Verse 4, 10, 4. Um, yeah, Christ, uh, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, and then verse 5 for Moses writes about the law. Okay, so Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. End of the law, end of the law. He is our righteousness. Even in the Old Testament, it proclaimed that. Jehovah Tzikeno, the Lord, our righteousness, right? That's what, uh, who was that? Jeremiah said that. The Lord, our righteousness. And then later in the same book, it says that Jerusalem would be... Um, they would call 
uh, it's same same general terminology, but it's applied to Jerusalem. But for uh, the Lord, he is called our righteousness. In the book of Jonah, it says in chapter 2, when he's in the belly of the fish, salvation is of the Lord. It doesn't say of the law. It is of the Lord, the Lord who fulfilled the law. Okay? And 130 so, here. And what? 130 in Corinthians. He's made unto us righteousness. righteousness. That's right. 130. Verse 132 or 1 Corinthians? One, first Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I you remember verse numbers. I don't. I, I have to look for verse numbers. I remember words and verses, but I don't remember these verse numbers. He's got like this, this uh, memory that just, he just can't miss those numbers. Therefore, Paul is using the account based on the law. This is the end of the law for righteousness. Paul is using the account of the Israelites before Moses as a parable of the time in which we live. The law is ended in Christ, but the Israelites could not see the end of it. They looked at the law as permanent and as a means to an end. But the law was intended to lead us to Christ. Where is that stated explicitly? Galatians. It is a tutor to lead us to Christ, right? The word is what? Galatians 3. Okay. It's a pedagogue. Okay. A pedagogue was, if you don't know what that is, there was a person, we'll say he's a rich person in the Roman Empire, and he's got a son. And he doesn't have time to tend to the affairs of the son. So he would hire, or he had a servant, or somebody he trusted that was the pedagogue. And that person would take that child by the hand to school, bring him home. He would educate him in all of the right knowledge of Rome and the structure of the empire and the laws and the God. He'd tell him everything he could, all, any wisdom that he could get out or get somebody else to teach this child, but he was the one that led that child around, grabbing it by the hand and taking him wherever he was to go. And eventually, that child would grow up into an adult and he would no longer be under a tutor, a pedagogue, okay? And that is what the law was. The law was simply a tutor taking us by the hand as human beings and saying, I'm taking you to show you something else. Christ, who is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. That's the symbolism you're looking for there. Okay, so uh, because they missed that, meaning Israel, they could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. And this is exactly what has happened in the dispensational model of redemptive history. It doesn't happen in the reform model where they have covenants, and I'm not against covenants. There are lots of covenants in the Bible, but covenantalism is not an end in and of itself. It is one part of what God is doing in redemptive history. Dispensations are another part where he is working out in the dispensations of time certain things, which include Israel eventually coming to collectively a saving faith in Jesus Christ. However, Olshausen asks, how could St. Paul say that Moses covered his countenance in order that the Israelites should not behold Christ? His question seems to imply that it would be wrong for Israel, who was looking for their Messiah, to be denied seeing Christ. However, this is an incorrect analysis. They were not denied this actively. He came and he presented himself. It was as obvious as the nose on your face. Instead, they chose to deny him. They were offered Christ in Acts 2. From there and throughout the book of Acts, it shows the truth that Jesus was rejected by them, exactly as the Bible said would happen. Paul explains this once again in Romans chapter 11. So let me take you there. Romans 11, and it says in verse 25, For I do not desire, I do desire, brethren, that you should 
I do not desire, let me read that again, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness, what he's talking about here, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, okay? Until that happens, the Gentiles will still be the main thing going on in the church. It doesn't mean the Jews aren't a thing going on in the church, but they have to individually come to Christ, okay? That's been happening throughout the church age, and Paul even confirms that when he uses the example of, uh, who was it, Elijah? I'm the last one, and what was the divine answer? Yet I have reserved 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, and he says, even now there is a remnant saved by grace. And that means that all the way through the church age, there have been believing Jews. And if you go back all the way through the church age and you read, you will find this guy believed in Jesus in 1277 AD, right? Or whatever. You just go through there and you'll see writings where there's Jews. John Wesley read a, led a rabbi to a saving knowledge of Jesus. There has been a remnant saved by grace all the way through, okay? But the majority of them have rejected him. They've been under punishment for a set amount of time determined by God, just as did God have a set amount of time for Israel's first punishment? How long? Where is that recorded? Anywhere? In the book of Jeremiah. So the Lord told them, you will be under punishment for this amount of time. He told them, can we expect anything less for the second time? Absolutely. He told them. It is recorded in Ezekiel chapter 4. It's very clear in there. You just have to do a calculation to figure it out. But he did tell them how long it would be. And then they would be restored as a nation. They would be restored with their capital. And as it says in Ezekiel 36, I think, or 30, 35, anyway, uh, yeah, the 36, they, uh, uh, the nation will stand up, but there's no spirit in them. And eventually they will have the spirit in them. And that's explained elsewhere, such as in Zechariah, okay? They will be a nation first, and then they will be given the spirit okay but it's all there in the old testament it's all explained there and paul just confirms it in such as romans 9 through 11 okay it is there he did tell them the first exile he told them the second exile oh and just so you know the calculation if you want to do it it's in ezekiel chapter 4 ezekiel's told to lay on his side this many years and he's told to lay on this side this many years and it says but if you don't listen the first time in uh leviticus 26 i will uh, I will increase your punishment seven times over. So you take those number of years, subtract the 70 years, multiply times 70, and you come out to May 14th, 1948. Okay, 907,200 days after they were exiled, they are brought back in. And then Jerusalem as a capital fell 19 years after the initial exile. You can get that from the word as well. And so what do you do? You 907,000 200 days from that, and you add those 19 years on, and what happened 19 years after Israel was reestablished as a nation? Jerusalem, 7 June 1967, to the day. The days are right there. It's right there in the Word, okay? I, too long to do the whole calculation for you right now, but let me take you there really quickly, just so you can get an idea of what's said, all right? Um, Ezekiel, uh, what did I say? Chapter 4, okay? Ezekiel chapter 4, and it says here, it won't take long. He's supposed to make a, a, a portray Jerusalem. I make a little. He's he's a living example. He's a sign to Israel. A sign is not something in and of itself. A sign tells of something else. That's what a sign does. It confirms something else. It tells of something else. So he's got to make a battering ram against it, and you're gonna you're gonna be like Israel going into exile. Okay, and 
fighting against Jerusalem, okay? And he says, take an iron plate and set it as a wall against you. And it says, this will be a sign, verse 3, to the house of Israel. And then he tells them, lie on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. And I've laid on you the years of their iniquity, according to the number of days, 390 days, you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So he says a year to a day, 390 years. Okay. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. Okay. So 390 plus 40 is 430. Okay. Take off 70 and you come up to what? 360. I, I saw brains starting to seize up. Okay. So, and then what does it say in um, uh, Leviticus 26? Let me read it to you just so you know. And then you can go do the calculation yourself. Leviticus 26. Um, he says it a couple times, but uh, uh, verse 21, then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me because you've been exiled and you didn't pay attention, I will bring on you seven times more plagues. I will punish you seven times over for your sins, he says in uh, verse 18. Okay, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. So take 360, multiply it times uh, 70. I'm sorry, uh, uh, 360 times seven, and you come out to, I think it's 2,520. Okay, and then that's the number of years. Go back to the original date, add them up, and you'll come out to May 14, 1967. I don't have all of it written down in my head, so I'm not going to do it for you right now. But that's you can get, get it by just simply doing that calculation. But this is what the dispensational model says. It says that uh, Israel is going to be under punishment. And he even says in the book of Isaiah, before they were exiled the first time, he says, I will reach out and regather you a second time. He told them in advance, you're going to be exiled twice, okay? So the hints are all there. It just has to be put together. I think, I may be wrong on that, but I think that's Isaiah chapter 11, okay? Yet a second time, I will reach out and uh, restore you. Okay, so anyway, um, God knew in advance that they would reject their Messiah, but it served a greater purpose in that the nations received him and became the called out Gentile church, Okay, Israel was set aside during this dispensation until the fullness, as he says, of the Gentiles has come in. And yet, even during this dispensation, oh, I talked about this earlier, there has been a remnant of Israel who is saved by grace. I'll read it to you just so you know that I wasn't making that up, and it actually says that right in Romans chapter 11. He says, uh, Romans chapter 11, 13, 12, 11. And he says there, I'll just read the whole thing from verse 1. I say, then has God cast away his people? Who are his people? Israel. He's very clear. He never calls the church Israel, ever. Israel is Israel, okay? Certainly not. I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? That's what I said a minute ago. How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left. Poor Elijah. Then they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, here it is. Then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Israel hasn't called on their Messiah collectively, which has to happen before Christ comes back. But during that time, there's a Sergio in Israel. You've got uh, uh, Jewish believers in, you know, Moscow, and you've got Jewish believers here in Florida, and you've got them all over the place, little messianic synagogues all over the place, okay? There's a remnant of 
these people saved by grace. It is not the collective whole. They're still under punishment. They are being brought out of that. They'll get their temple. They'll have seven years to get that finished at the three and a half year point. They're going to realize that it was a big mistake. They're going to realize that the new covenant is true. And eventually they are going to call out to Jesus and he's going to return to them. But that all has to be fulfilled. It's written. The word cannot right here, the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over all things. We'll talk about that on Sunday and you'll see how God is sovereign over all things. It's not going to be about Calvinism, except in the second part of the, uh, the first part we'll talk about how we know that God is sovereign and what does that mean. I know that you will enjoy it. I hope you will. I, I shouldn't say I know, but I hope you will enjoy that because it's a wonderful thing, understanding what God is like and how trustworthy he is and how great he is. Anyway. Um, right on that, Isaiah 11, 11. 11, 11. There you go. I get one point. Okay. Give me a, give me a, a merit, not a demerit, but a merit badge. Okay. There is a time coming when the Gentiles will have reached their fullness and they will be raptured home to be with the Lord. Okay, that's what the Bible says. I hate the, to argue with people, but that is what the Bible says. There is a fullness of the Gentiles. There's a time when there will be no more fullness of the Gentiles. There has to be an end to it. And if there is an end to it, that means that we will be taken out. That does not mean that there won't be Gentiles saved after the church age. Right. People make that, uh, you know, they make that mistake that, oh, you don't assume that you're going to be saved during the tribulation period. If you want to be saved during the tribulation period, it is the exact same process as right now. It's just that you'll have to go through the tribulation period, okay? People say you can't be saved. They're wrong. Who is the great white multitude that comes out of there? There the has argument, to be... The what? argument is, is that... With our rapture out, so goes the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, and that's true. But that's the Holy Spirit of the church. But the Holy Spirit is God. We'll talk about that on Sunday. Because the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. So it's saying that the Holy Spirit in the believers is taken out. It's not saying that the Holy Spirit is taken out. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. You can't take them out in the sense that they are applying to that particular verse. Okay, so and having said that, it says that there will be people that are beheaded for their faith during the tribulation period. Everybody got that? What does it say at the end of that time? They will be raised never to die again. The second death has no power over them. They'll be saved. Okay, they may lose their head in the process, but they will be saved. I, I just, it's not worth arguing with people that have got something in their head and they're unwilling to think it through, but that's what it says, okay? Uh, the Gentile, but during this dispensation, there is a time where there is a fullness of the Gentiles. It doesn't, same thing, just because this is a Gentile-led church age, are there Jews being saved? Yes, okay, same thing. Afterward, it will be directed to the Jews, but it does not mean, it's a category mistake to say that no Gentiles would be saved. They will be. Okay, people have to understand that the grace of God does not end on a certain day. The grace of God never ends. God is love. God is grace. I'm not trying to add to the Bible. The Bible explicitly says God is love. But if he is his attribute and one of his attributes is grace, then God is grace. God is mercy. God is righteous. God is justice. He is all of these attributes and that does not ever change. Ever. And, you know, when somebody's got a theological pet peeve, what I send to them is I said, find that in John 3, 16. For God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him and reads the King James Version only will be saved. No, it doesn't say that. Or that he who believes in him and uh, 
denies the rapture will be saved. Or you just put in your pet peeve, see if it fits, and if it doesn't, then forget it. It's probably not correct, okay? And that's what I, I do. When people start arguing, I just say here, just put it in brackets and send it to them and think about that. It, don't argue with people after the first or second time. It's, right. it's not it's worth not it, and Paul says don't do it, okay? So there you go with that. Um, uh, where were we? Um, yeah, they will be taken away. They will see that Christ is, in fact, the end of the law for all who believe. That is coming after the end of the Gentile church age, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Life application, let us pray for Israel to have their collective eyes opened to the saving of Jesus, saving grace of Jesus Christ. God is working on them now, and that wondrous day is coming. May it be soon. Now, just so you know, I, I could just cite it to you, and I think I did last week, but rather than doing that, uh, no, I'm not going to because I don't know where it is. I'm going to have to cite it to you because he knows the verse, and I'm not going to ask him. Okay. <laughs> Jesus says explicitly that he's not coming back to this earth until Israel calls on him. Okay, I say it from time to time. It's very clear what he says. Let me let me uh, think of the words. It says, uh, I have longed to gather you. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's speaking to Jerusalem, the seat of power in Israel. How I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, but you were not willing. See, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He tells him exactly. And you know what? I had a guy argue this point once. He said, um, oh, well, you know, it says in um, uh, Matthew, it says that before, what did they say when Jesus came in on the day of uh, the... Uh, Hosanna, blessed is he. Okay, and they said, see, that's fulfilled at that time. And they said, you misunderstood. Matthew is not chronological. The Beatitudes are in chapter 5. That didn't happen until way later in his ministry. Mark is chronological. And I say, go look at Mark. And he never responded after that. Oh, oh, because he was definitely speaking of something way future, not something immediate. Okay. Mark is chronological. If you want to know the timing of Jesus' crucifixion and Passion Week, go to Mark. Now, you can use the other Gospels, but you have to be careful how you use them. But Mark is very clear. On the next day, in the next morning, you know, at 12, whatever. He's very clear. It's a chronological account. So why okay. Is you know, it's the same thing as uh, Jeremiah is all over the place. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah is the least chronological book I think you'll ever see. He just, he'll be speaking about this king and then, you know, something that referred chapters earlier or whatever. He's all over the place. Why? I don't know. But God has set it up and it makes sense when you read it. And Matthew, when you read it, it makes sense. And numbers, as we saw, is not always chronological. And there are times where I said, this is probably not chronological, saying probably because I can't be dogmatic about it, but especially because dogs don't have watches and so they don't <laughs> match time. But anyway, um, you got to be careful with those type of things. But it is true that Jesus was speaking to Israel at the end of the age. They will call on him. He will return to them. And it ain't happening until that happens. Okay, so there you go with that. And uh, 314. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Okay. I This one here reads just a little differently in the first words. But their minds were blinded. Okay. And that's probably more precise. I, I Maybe I've even said it here. Anyway. Oh, no. 
Dull is fine. Here we go. Referring to the, when I'm not sure, you know, I'll give the Greek I did here. Okay, referring to the Jews and any others who would follow the misguided notion about the purpose and continuance of the Old Testament, Paul states that their minds were blinded. The word for blinded is porao. It properly means made of stone. And so figuratively, it means insensible, dull, unperceptive as a rock, calloused or hardened, or unresponsive, meaning dense, completely lacking sensitivity or spiritual perception. So that's actually dull is probably better than blinded. For this reason, many translations prefer the word hardened instead of blinded. The hardening of one's eyes indicates a spiritual blindness. So the same concept is understood. However, this action is often as much self-willed and purposeful in some as it is lacking in others. When somebody knows they're wrong, but they don't want to admit they're wrong, they're purposefully blinding themselves, okay? In other words, there are those who have been told that Jesus permeates the Old Testament and is revealed in the New, but they willingly harden their minds to the fact. I know a lot of people that have done that. The New Testament on numerous occasions shows that the law is fulfilled in Christ and thus it is nailed to the cross. That's Colossians 2, verse 14. Okay, it's annulled, as it says in Hebrews 7, 18. It is set aside or obsolete in Hebrews 8, 13, and it is taken away, taken away in Hebrews 10, verse 9. These and multiple other references show that those who cling to the Old Testament especially meaning the Old Covenant of the Old Testament, for the application of their spiritual doctrine have, as Paul says, until this day, the same veil, covering their spiritual senses that kept them from seeing Christ or the fullness of his work in the very law which is now abolished. Hebrews roots people. You can tell them. You can take them right to those verses in Hebrews and uh, explain the symbolism of the law being nailed to the cross in Colossians 2 and they completely deny it. It's as if you've never said a word to them. I've had this happen numerous times, countless times, all right? The symbolism is, just in case you haven't thought it through, did somebody go up to the cross and take a copy of the Law of Moses and nail it to it? But Paul says the law is nailed to the cross, okay? Obviously, it means that Christ embodies the law, which is the point of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. You've got the Tablets of the old, of the ark were put where? On the table of showbread? No, they were put into the ark. And on top of the ark was the mercy seat. And everything about it, the dimensions, the wood that was used, the gold that covered it, everything points to Jesus Christ. The wood was shittim wood, which is acacia. It's incorruptible wood, as incorruptible as you're going to get for wood. And what does that mean? His humanity was incorruptible. He was morally perfect. And then the gold is his divinity wrapping around his man, uh, his uh, humanness, okay? And so you've got the picture of the God-man, and he is here. It's like a box, and in the box is the law of Moses, meaning he embodies it. He encompasses it, everything about it. And then on the top of it is the mercy seat. And here you've got where the blood was shed, asking for atonement, and he is that mercy seat. The two angels at the end, right? There's cherubim on each end, and they're looking down at it. And then where is the symbolism fulfilled? Right in the book of John. She looked into there and she saw at one end and the other two angels sitting there. They're beholding what God had done by dying in his blood, spilling on the earth, laying there dead for our sins. Now, all of the symbolism is right there. It's all right there if people will simply 
look at it, okay? So when the law was nailed to the cross, it means that Jesus, the embodiment of the law, was nailed to the cross. And Jesus didn't just pull out the, the uh, nails and come down and say, okay, I'm done. He died on the cross. Because the law is nailed to the cross and the law is Jesus, it means that the law has died. It's done. The symbolism is all through the old covenant looking to the new covenant. It is all done. Okay, if people, and you can explain this to people and they ignore it. I just, I can't follow that logic. Can't you see what God has done? And they have the same veil that the Jews do. They, it's the same veil. Anyway, so um, these and multiple other references, meaning Hebrews and Colossians, uh, show that those who cling to the Old Testament, meaning the Old Covenant, for the application of their spiritual doctrine, have until this day the same veil covering their spiritual senses. Okay, that kept them from seeing Christ or the fullness of his work in the law, which is abolished. Paul couldn't be clearer on this, and yet it is not only the Jewish people, but countless heretical sects which reintroduce the law and thus bring condemnation on themselves. In Christ is found the embodiment of the law. Therefore, in Christ is where we are to place our hopes. This veil which remains in place is unlifted, as Paul says, in the reading of the Old Testament. Anytime the law is read to a person who is trying to be justified by the law, the veil remains. They have missed Christ and are attempting to seek a right standing before God based on personal merit. It is a self-condemning act. If you don't believe that, we'll take a quick journey to the book of Galatians. And let me see if I can find it very quickly. He thinks, uh, he says, uh, let's see here, um, uh, cross, uh, not... Okay, well, he says, let me cling to the cross, the circumcised, and, uh, um, oh, I know. Anyway, I can quote it to you. He says that uh, if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, the law profits you nothing, and you are, a, or I'm sorry, Christ profits you nothing, and you are a debtor to the whole law. I'm not seeing it right in front of me, but that's what he says, and I just wanted to read it to you. See? Oh, here it is right here. Verse 5, 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. There's freedom. There's not freedom in the law. It's a yoke of bondage. Free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, verse 2, I, Paul, say to you that Christ, uh, to you, that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Again, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. That's it. It's a self-condemning act, all right? And that's not talking about having your child circumcised for health reasons, okay? That's not what that's talking about. It's about somebody that isn't circumcised. I got people in my family that aren't circumcised. And if somebody says, you know, you don't get circumcised, you can't go to heaven because you have to obey the law of Moses, that's what that's talking about. And they go, oh, I got to go get circumcised. And they go and do it. They've got it. They're a debtor to the whole law. It's, it, there's no point in that because Christ is the end of that for all who believe, for righteousness, okay? So, there we go. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah, they've missed Christ. Finally, the New King James Version here ends with this, with this, with the verse, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Now, listen carefully. They inserted the word veil there. This is a possible translation, but it is not the intent of Paul's words. Notice that the word veil, if you have your New King James Version or King James, I'm Maybe the King James doesn't, but the King, New King James does. Notice that the word veil is inserted, okay? Any italicized words are inserted, and they do that supposedly for clarity. 
It is not in the Greek. In their translation, they have incorrectly assumed that it is the veil which is taken away in Christ. But this is probably explained in verse 16. Rather, Paul's words here are speaking of the law itself. In Christ, the law is taken away. Only when one realizes this is the veil then removed. Here's John Darby's translation of this verse, rightly showing Paul's intent. But their thoughts have been darkened, for until unto this day, the same veil remains in the reading of the Old Covenant, unremoved, which in Christ is annulled. He got that right. That is what that's speaking of. It's not speaking of the veil being taken away. It's speaking of the covenant being taken away, as it explicitly says in Hebrews. Once it is understood that the old covenant is annulled and a turning to the Lord has taken, taken place, then verse 16 can occur. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It's not the veil in this verse. That's coming in two more verses. Life application. If you are in a church which mandates precepts from the Old Testament, I mean Old Covenant of the Old Testament, circumcision, Sabbath worship, meaning Saturday, tithing, and so on, then get out of there. We do not reinsert the new, what has been annulled in the old. Okay? We don't do that. You take the old and you put it away in its entirety. Get out of that church or talk to the pastor and say, I'll say this. Maybe I said it in last week's sermon. Maybe I'll say it in this week's sermon. It's not necessary to leave a church over a couple minor doctrinal points. But if you disagree with him and you can prove that he is wrong, then go quietly and just say, you know, I disagree with this and I want to show you that that is not right. Okay? There you go with that. But uh, if they are mandating these things, I would show them one time and I'd say it again and then I'd leave because you don't reinsert the old, any of it. Okay, 315. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Okay. In the previous verse, Paul notes this concerning the Jews. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. As explained in that verse, the evaluation of it, the veil should be rendered the Old Covenant. In support of that, Paul continues with, but even to this day, it has to be remembered that Paul wrote this epistle about 30 years after the time of Christ. The temple was still standing. The Jews attended their synagogues and read weekly from the Torah, and the veil remained over their hearts concerning the work of the Lord. He was just as hidden to them then as he was before he came. Now, it is about 2,000 years later, and the same truth applies. When Jews meet to discuss the Torah, the details of Christ are hidden from them. And I will say this, that on the One for Israel videos, if you listen to them, quite often they'll say, the synagogue never opens the Bible. They may do a Torah reading, but most of what they did comes from other Jewish writings, maybe the Talmud or the Mishnah or something, but they don't even get into the Bible at all. And there is a forbidden passage that is never read, ever, in the synagogue. That's right, Isaiah 53. And so this is something that they have no idea. All you have to do, you know what, this one guy uh, was, I'll, I'll give you an example of what he was talking about. He was uh, one of the people on the video, and he says, I uh, was asked about Jesus when I was young, and I'm, no, that's not me. And he, he went through his life experiences, and then he said, I got to the point where I was, I was just done. And so he was leaving work, and he was going home, and he said, the first truck or car that passes me, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to steer into them. He said he couldn't have cared about them at that point. All he wanted was his misery to end, Okay. 
And he said, this is a very busy road. And he said, I drove down that road and not a single car passed me. And I got home and he, he blew up at his wife. His wife called the psychiatrist, I think it was, and said, uh, uh, you need to talk to him. He's really not doing well. And what's up? You know, psychiatrist asked and he says, I told him and he said, listen, um, I, I need you to talk to me. I may have two stories mixed up. I think this is one story. And he said, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to go to Isaiah 53 and I want you to go to Psalm 22. And he goes to all these messianic passages and he says, who is he talking about? And he says, well, it sounds like Jesus to me. He had no idea. He'd never heard these words read right out of their own law. And all of a sudden he realizes this is speaking about a Jewish person that's going to die in Israel. Okay. It, 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 it's marvelous to listen to these because you can now empathize with how they are because they're not told any of this. And as a matter of fact, they're told you are never to talk to Christians about any theology ever. You know, some of these rabbis are adamant. You don't talk about it ever. So they, of course they have this lingering over their heads. Okay. The time for this, the, the Jews meeting to uh, synagogues and the Torah or maybe nothing else from scripture at all, the time for this is ending. Jews are converting to Christ at an ever-increasing rate. Israel has been returned to the land of Israel as prophesied. The nations of the world are coming against them, just as the Bible showed would happen. All of this is preparing them for one final seven-year period where a temple will stand, and they will finally understand what Daniel was talking about in verses 9, 24 through 27 of his book. In the end, the Jewish nation will finally call out to Jesus, and he will return to rescue them. But until that happens, the veil lies on their heart. We are witnessing the coming end of the church age and the time of Daniel's 70th week, which will end with the final veil being removed. Life application. It's a messy world, and it is getting messier. Well, they found out, if you haven't seen the news, it was a missile that brought down that uh, plane. If you, okay, so you do know that. But God has a plan which he is working on through it all. Stand back and watch the Lord work. Israel's being prepared for a meeting with their true Messiah. Before we get into the next verse, you will hear at times, how do you defend against this? Um, the temple that will bring the Jews to Jesus is the church because the temple is the church and Jesus is the naos, the holy uh, part of that church. How do you defend against that? How do you say, no, it's a real temple that they're going to have to go through? It's not the church that's being referred to. You take them to Revelation 11, because you'll hear this. People bring up these arguments. It says, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Can you measure a bunch of people? No. no there you go. You take that literally, because he's being told to do it literally, okay? There's a reason for those things. It, it is a real temple. It will stand, and it even explains further that the outer courts are left to the Gentiles. That's right. So everything about that is not symbolic. It's saying this is what's coming, okay? It is not the church, or it's not Jesus being the Holy of Holies, and that's what's being referred to, okay? It is a real temple that's coming. Okay. Zechariah 12. Well, I'll get to Zechariah 12 eventually. Yeah, I got it right here in this okay. coming commentary. Okay. So if you don't leave me alone, we'll never get to it. <laughs> he's, I can see he's all anxious about that. He and I are always thinking the same thing. Yes, we're getting, it's right here in the one, two, three, four, fifth paragraph. So as we go, we can count off the paragraphs and you can get more. I love Burke. He is so fun. Okay, he gets, he's like me. He's like a schoolboy. 
if you don't get his commentaries, if you want him, he'll add you to his email list. He does great stuff. He sends them out, not every day, but usually every day I'll get something, and it's always good. Talk to Burke. He'll put you on his list. Okay, 316. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Yes. Okay, different translators look at what is being said here in a couple of ways. In the New King James Version, it says, when one turns to the Lord. It implies that each time a Jew turns to Jesus, the veil is taken away. However, other translations say, when it shall turn to the Lord. This then would be speaking of the heart of Israel collectively. The Weymouth Version says this more specifically with the words, but whenever the heart of the nation shall have returned to the Lord, the veil will be taken away or withdrawn. I'm sorry, will be withdrawn. That's the Weymouth Version. It is true that individually as Jews come to the Lord, the veil is taken away. However, the context of the passage is implying the whole nation. This was actually pictured in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, 31, it says, Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Okay, that was when they, the, the thing about the veil and the shining face, okay? The prophetic picture of that passage is that the rulers who represent the nation returned to Moses. The word drives the analogy which Paul clearly saw and is using for us to see, okay? He's speaking to the elders. They represent the nation. That is what is being referred to, okay? This is also pictured in the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38 and of Joseph revealing himself to his brothers in Genesis 41. Further, it is explicitly stated by Jesus in Matthew 23. I should have known that's where it was. I'm going to take you there, and I'm just going to read it because I, I hate not having the verse read to you right from the Bible. Okay, we're going to go to Matthew 23, and I know you've already heard this once, but and I get ahead of myself on these things because I'm like Burke and I get excited. Okay, so uh, Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. Jesus speaking to Jerusalem, which is the seat of power in Israel, said that when they, when they call on him, he will come to them. This implies that the veil has been taken away. Zechariah speaks of the effect of this moment on the people. Zechariah 12, verse 10, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then, I'm going to use this in the Trinity sermon coming up in two weeks. They will look on me, first person, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him, second person, as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Okay, Zechariah 12.10. Is that the verse you were looking for? Well, I wanted to see. He says in that day, one, two, three, four, five, six, okay. six times in that day. In that day, that's right. In that day. And it's not going to happen until they call on Jesus. Yeah. It is not going to happen in that day. Life application, it should be as apparent as the nose on one's face that Jesus is not through with the nation of Israel. If you are a replacement theologian, you may be missing your nose. <laughs> 317. We got time for just, uh, I don't know. Let me check and see how long this is. 
Yes, we got time. Go ahead. Okay. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This phrase seems perplexing, but it is only perplexing if we fail to look for the context of Paul's thoughts. In verse 3, 6, he said, Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's now returning to that thought, as if the intervening verses were all parenthetical. He's been contrasting the supremacy of the new covenant over the old. In doing so, he gave the example of Moses' veil as a picture of how the truth of Christ is veiled to those who read the law without the connection of Jesus in relation to the words it contains. Once a person, specifically a Jew, and more specifically, the nation of Israel collectively turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In this is found the answer to what Paul is saying. The Lord is the spirit of biblical interpretation. This is not speaking then of the Holy Spirit, but the knowledgeable relationship between what is written in the law and what it is pointing out, which is Christ Jesus. We have that confirmed right in the book of John chapter 5. I like to cite this one to you quite often, and here's what it says in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The sentiment that Paul is giving here is very similar to the words of the angel who spoke to John in the book of Revelation. Okay, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There you go with that. Um, Albert Barnes explains the intent of this verse quite well. He says, The sense is that Christ was the Spirit that is the sum, the substance of the Old Testament. The figures, types, prophecies, and so on, all centered in him. And he was the end of all those institutions. If contemplated as having reference to him, it was easy to understand them. Understanding who Jesus is and understanding what Scripture is saying about him leads to the liberty that Paul addresses. The Jews only found true liberty from the veil which covers their eyes when they turn to the Lord. Life application, we got to be done because we cannot get the next verse done. One can read Scripture all day long and not properly understand it unless that person recognizes that it is revealing Jesus. Therefore, Arguing scripture with those who do not accept who he is makes no sense. They must first be correctly trained in the subject of scripture before they can understand the meaning behind the words. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much for Jesus, who is the subject of this word. From the very beginning all the way through the Bible, Everything is about Jesus in one way or another. These stories are given to us and they can be hard to understand. We can say, why did the Lord put this in here? But when we look for Jesus, he comes out. He comes out in full, beautiful, glorious splendor. So thank you for that. Lord, you heard the prayers and petitions at the beginning of the service and the people that are on our hearts and in our minds right now, people that may be online right now that are struggling. And Lord, search them out. Look into their hearts and help them to be comforted in their affliction and to... Uh, 
trust you even through it because we have a much better hope coming and we wait for that day when you call us home and may that day be soon. Until then, we just praise you and glorify you and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me back this baby up. <laughs>